Last 5% Media. On this podcast, we discuss details of crimes that are often violent in nature. In addition, historical audio and original interviews include outdated language to describe sex workers. Listener discretion is advised. Kenneth Bianchi arrived in the Washington State Prison System's Reception Center on January 10, 1984. He provided his mother's contact information and signed a form turning over his possessions to prison authorities, $6.03. He filled out a 12-page resident questionnaire for review by a prison sociologist. Bianchi wrote he was raised by two loving adoptive parents that he briefly attended a Catholic seminary and studied to be a priest. Two days after he arrived, a sociologist interviewed him and wrote on an evaluation form, cooperates, well-spoken, does not appear to be a problem. I so annoyed the last picture I seen of this guy. Like, are you kidding me? This is Mika Mercado, Yolanda Washington's daughter. As Mika set out to learn more about her mother, she inevitably found news stories about the man who killed her, Kenneth Bianchi. Some of those stories include pictures of Bianchi. He's now in his 70s with gray hair and a gray mustache. This guy is like walking around like, you know, not a care in the world. He's made a life for himself. He has a daily routine. He gets up every morning and, you know, he has friends. He gets sick tomorrow. He gets to go to the infirmary. I get sick. Sometimes I don't get to go to the doctor because I might not have the money for my copay. Sometimes me and my kid have to balance a budget, $40 a week to eat. He gets three meals a day, commissary. He has access to library. He has entertainment. Bianchi completed the coursework for an associate arts degree from a local community college. He's since earned a bachelor's degree and a law degree from the University of Honolulu. In 1990, Bianchi received a certificate from the Evangelical Theological Seminary, indicating he'd completed training as a minister. He gets even education. He gets an education. He's not suffering. That's not suffering. He's probably living better than, you know, living better than I'm living, and he took my support system. Mika sometimes considered making the trip to Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla and sitting across a table from a man who confessed to murdering her mother. I've even, I had a thought of like, man, I want to go see them, see him. What would come of that? Like, would that do me more harm? than good? And would I be giving this psychopath a platform? Because I'm not going to get empathy. I'm not going to get any type of understanding or any type of real closure. Still, Mika wanted to look him in the eye. And then I played out in my mind, like, what I would do, like, you know, like a scene of a movie. I'm Joseph Fredota. I first encountered the Hillside Strangler case 30 years ago in my former career as a political opposition researcher. In this podcast, I revisit 10 homicides that terrorized Los Angeles in 1977 and 1978 and the longest murder trial in U.S. history. Just looking at those photos, you saw, man, the jury's going to find that very compelling. 
There was no case with Tapianki. Bianchi, you know, had obviously had done his best to torpedo the case, but the case couldn't just be built on one guy. From Last 5% Media, this is Hillside. Chapter 6, Hocus Pocus. On July 21, 1981, Judge Ronald George denied a motion from the office of Los Angeles District Attorney John Vandekamp to dismiss 10 murder charges against Angelo Bono. If the DA couldn't vigorously and effectively prosecute Bono, the judge said, he was prepared to call upon the state attorney general or appoint a special prosecutor. The judge gave Vandekamp's office a week to decide whether it would stick with the case. There's 10 dead women out there, yeah. been tortured, strangled, and raped to death. This is Robert Filibosian. At the time, he was the senior deputy attorney general in charge of criminal cases at the California Department of Justice. Shortly after the judge issued his ruling, an aide to Vandekamp called Filibosian and said, John would like you to review our decision to dismiss this case. Here's what I think was behind that call. The judge's decision caught Vandekamp completely by surprise, and he may have wanted to look like he was somehow still in charge. Filibosian would have none of it. I'm not going to review your decision. That's not what Judge George said. Judge George said, you send it to the attorney general's office, or I, the judge, will send it to the attorney general's office. Filibosian told the aide how his department was going to handle it. You send the case to us. We will review the case. We will decide whether or not it should be prosecuted. So over there, if you see those green binders there on the floor, on the bottom shelf, they're alphabetized. That's the alpha file that has all the police reports in them. This is Roger Boren. He's retired now, living in Southern California. His home office and basement are filled with boxes of files on the Hillside Strangler case. And then down here, I have a second alpha file that Mike Nash and I did during the trial that are summaries of every witness. So. What's in the hallway? There it is. My eyes just aren't very good. In 1981, Boren was a deputy attorney general in charge of special prosecutions, including cases involving organized crime. I'd only done one other murder trial. I never told the press that. As Judge George was deciding how to rule, Boren took his family on a week's vacation in the Sequoia National Forest. When I left town, I heard that there was a motion to dismiss that was pending, and uh, I was up in the mountains, and when I came out of the mountains with my family back down here, I heard that, surprisingly, that the judge had denied the motion to dismiss that the prosecution had made. I heard that in the news just like anybody else. Boren returned to the office that Monday, unaware that his life was about to change. And I walked in the door, and Bob Filibosian, who is the assistant attorney general in charge of criminals statewide, he stopped me in the, right by the elevator and said, uh, you need to come up to my office. Filibosian asked Boren to review the case and make a recommendation on whether there was enough evidence to prosecute Angelo Bono. And... Bob says, you can have anybody as your assistant you want. Boren selected a colleague in the AG's office, a young lawyer named Mike Nash. Mike 
was quite a bit the opposite of me. He's smaller. He's kind of feisty. He was the perfect foil for us to play Mutt and Jeff all through the case. In 2020, Nash ran the Los Angeles County Office of Child Protection. I met him in his downtown L.A. office. We both had handled hundreds of uh, appeals in the criminal area. I don't think anybody could say either of us was tremendously experienced trial lawyers, but we had both done trials. In summer 1981, Boren and Nash were under a very tight deadline. So that began a process of uh, at least, I think, about two weeks. I have a diary somewhere I could look at it. Just as they were getting started, the Los Angeles Times broke a story, headline, Memo Site Holes in Strangler Case. Someone had leaked to the Times confidential memos from the office of District Attorney John Vandekamp. The story detailed problems the DA had with evidence linking Bono to each of the victims, from Yolanda Washington, the first, to Cindy Hudspeth, the tenth. The article cataloged all of Bianchi's conflicting statements to psychiatrists, investigators, and on the witness stand so far. And it revealed Prosecutor Roger Kelly's conclusion about the case against Bono. It was unwinnable. Mike Nash was appalled. An internal memorandum in the district attorney's office indicating what... He said at the time that whoever leaked these memos had basically handed a roadmap to Angela Bono's defense team. Indicating what the weaknesses were in the case. And that really will be a defense checklist in the case. And indeed... Roger Boren suspects that John Vandekamp, the district attorney, might have authorized the leak. Did you have a sense of why that ended up in the LA Times? Oh, I'm sure Kelly left let it out. And maybe Vandekamp let him do that. I don't know for sure, you know. Two days after that story appeared in the newspaper, Roger Kelly informed Judge Ronald George that the DA's office was bowing out of the case. We would assume he was just totally messed up, lacking in credibility, and we wanted to see what the other evidence was. Roger Boren and Mike Nash had two weeks to review the case against Angelo Bono and make a recommendation to their boss, the Attorney General of California. Corroborating instructions say it can be slight, the evidence can be slight, but it must tend to connect the defendant with the crime. Under California law, anyone facing the death penalty cannot be convicted solely on the testimony of an accomplice. That testimony needs to be backed up by other witnesses or by physical evidence. Mike Nash, Boren's co-prosecutor. Bianchi, you know, had obviously had done his best to torpedo the case, but the case couldn't just be built on one guy. Boren and Nash reviewed the evidence carefully. They read autopsy reports on each of the 10 victims. Forensic analysis of the fiber Frank Salerno found on the eyelid of Judy Miller. And they showed me the photographs they already had taken through the comparison microscopes. Fingerprints investigators found on the pay telephone in the Hollywood Public Library. All the police reports and so forth. They met with detectives who'd investigated each of the 10 murders. Lead detectives from LAPD and the sheriff came separately over to our office and we talked to them about the case. After reviewing the same evidence available to the L.A. County District Attorney, Boren and Nash reached a different conclusion. There was plenty of corroboration out there. Just looking at those photos, you said, man, the jury's going to find that very compelling. Boren and Nash met with State Attorney General George Dukmajan. 
They told him that despite some challenges, there was enough evidence to prosecute Angelo Bono. And we said it can be prosecuted and we can succeed. Uh, can't guarantee it, but it's got a good shot. Duke Majin's deputy, Robert Filibosian, sat in on the meeting and endorsed their recommendation. We're prosecuting this case. It can be prosecuted. That decision carried political risk for Duke Majin. He was a candidate for governor at the time, running on his record as a tough, effective prosecutor. If a jury decided the evidence wasn't compelling and voted to acquit Angela Bono, it would look like John Vandekamp had made the right call. We spent several hours with the attorney general, George Duke Majin. And at the end, um, he said, okay, let's try the case. In August 1981, Roger Bourne and Mike Nash began preparing for the trial of Angelo Bono, now scheduled to begin in mid-November. They called Vandekamp's office and asked for the rest of the DA's files on the case. We had them bring everything that the DA had over to our building, and that took a truck. I mean, the, the reports and all the exhibits that were in the hands of the DAs, uh, it took a whole truck. The contents of that truck shocked the new prosecutors. The files were a mess. They were just, just helter-skelter kind of thing, but they were not organized in a way that you could really decide what to do with. As they were sorting things out... There was a problem. A problem that threatened to destroy the entire case against Angelo Bono. It's been like a roller coaster. Every day's been a new experience. This is Gerald Chaliff the lead attorney representing Angelo Bono. Throughout the trial, Chaliff was a constant presence on the local evening news. As we said, Mr. Bono and Mr. Bianchi knew each other, but to extrapolate that from these witnesses, that some sinister thing was going on, doesn't seem to me that the evidence is there. Chaliff's first move was to keep three witnesses from testifying. Prosecutor Mike Nash explains. One is a woman named Beulah Stouffer, who was a witness to the kidnapping of Lauren Wagner. Very important witness. The other Beulah Stouffer was the middle-aged woman who, from her bedroom window, saw two men abduct Lauren Wagner from her car late one night. This included Ron Lemieux. Ron Lemieux saw two men push Yolanda Washington into a car at the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Detroit Avenue in Hollywood. And then Bianchi. Kenneth Bianchi confessed participating in 10 murders and agreed to testify against his cousin. Beulah Stouffer... Ron Lemieux, Kenneth Bianchi. These witnesses had something in common. Each of them had met with a hypnotist. Dr. Martin Reiser was the first full-time staff psychologist for the Los Angeles Police Department. He died in 2015. He published the Handbook of Investigative Hypnosis, a step-by-step guide to improve the memory of witnesses and victims of major crimes. Human memory, he wrote, is like a videotape machine that faithfully records everything a person sees or experiences. It permanently stores these memories in the brain's subconscious. Under hypnosis, when asked to remember these details, a witness simply replays these memories in their original form. Unfortunately, it was called hypnosis. Had it been called relaxation techniques or something else, I think it wouldn't have had the same reaction that people were misunderstanding. This is Dr. Susan Sachs Clifford. She's a psychologist who worked closely with Dr. Reiser for many years. 
but it was so misunderstood at that time. And the word still conjures, brings up a lot of misconceptions about what it is. Have you ever been hypnotized? Just a little bit. You might have seen a horror movie with a sinister character in a dark room taking control of someone, usually a woman, by hypnotizing her. Now keep your eyes closed. Do you feel my thumb on your forehead? Yes. Or maybe you've been to a state fair or a nightclub act and watched a hypnotist call unwitting members of an audience to the stage and take over their minds. On command, they begin sobbing or laughing or acting like farm animals. These examples have nothing in common with the type of hypnosis police departments used in the 1970s, Dr. Sachs Clifford explains. It's really just relaxing, and the way I would describe it is you relax and then all of a sudden things pop into your mind that you had forgotten. But when you're tense, you're trying to remember a name or a date or an incident, and then later on when you're relaxed, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's what it was. LAPD Chief Daryl Gates wrote the foreword to Dr. Martin Reiser's book about hypnosis. The LAPD gained a nationwide reputation for using psychology in policing, Gates wrote. Hypnosis, he added, has become an effective crime control application. Typically, it would be at the station in a confidential, quiet spot. But if someone was uncomfortable and we needed to go somewhere else, we could do that too. It just needs to be quiet, confidential, secure, and... Usually it was recorded, so the individual had to agree to having it recorded. In less than four years, the LAPD used hypnosis in more than 300 investigations. In two-thirds of those cases, hypnotic techniques yielded valuable information. The detective would also have been trained not to ask anything, not to do any leading questions, not to talk over themselves, to allow the person to finish their response. Eight major cases, Gates wrote, would not have been solved had hypnosis not refreshed the memory of the victim or witnesses. It's really not terribly different from what good detectives do anyway in getting people to remember. If you get somebody um, agitated, they're not going to remember much at all. And many people who are witnesses or victims are agitated naturally. So it was really a stress management technique. There was no uh, hocus pocus. I'm Elizabeth Barron, and I was a deputy attorney general on the Hillside Strangler case. Elizabeth Barron served many years as a trial and appeals court judge. She stepped down from the bench in 2000 to write legal textbooks and ride horses on her ranch. In 1981, she was a junior prosecutor in the state attorney general's office with a fascination for any case that involved probing the mind of a criminal. After Bono's defense attorney sought to preclude the testimony of any witness who'd been hypnotized, lead prosecutor Roger Boren asked Elizabeth Barron to join the team. The issue was whether or not hypnosis interfered with a person's memory, whether or not memories could be implanted or suggested to them, and whether or not it could change their testimony. If the judge ruled with the defense, striking those witnesses, most importantly, Kenneth Bianchi, the case against Bono might collapse. If, in fact, he found that Bianchi had been hypnotized, then Bianchi was out. There was no case without Bianchi. We're going to spend the rest of this episode on that defense motion, an attempt to keep the hypnotized witnesses from testifying. 
1979, a half-dozen psychiatrists examined Kenneth Bianchi in a Bellingham, Washington jail. A member of his defense team videotaped each of the sessions. Those tapes were in the mass of evidence the district attorney's office sent over to Roger Boren. We got a television monitor and hooked the U-Matic to it. Boren popped one of the cassettes into an early videotape player, the U-Matic by Sony. And I think that's where we first saw the tapes, and they were interesting. He called me one day and he said, Liz, come down to my office, you have to see this. Co-prosecutor Elizabeth Barron. I went down and he had the videotapes of Dr. Watkins' interviews of Bianchi. Dr. John Watkins interviewed Bianchi three times in March and April 1979. Around and around and around, deeper, deeper, deeper. And it, they were just hysterical. I mean, it was all we could do not to be rolling on the floor with laughter at this absolutely absurd, ridiculous show that Kenneth Bianchi was putting on. How anybody could believe this was just beyond us. And we thought Watkins was the biggest fool that we had ever seen in our lives. As it goes around and around and around, and you're relaxing deeper and deeper and deeper. And the shrink is asking Kenneth about who committed the crime. And Kenneth is saying, oh, and we've got Kenneth Bianchi sitting behind a little table. And we've got the shrink from Montana. And he says, part, come out, part. When Dr. Watkins says part, he's talking about an identity inside Bianchi, a part of Bianchi's psyche. At this point, Dr. Watkins doesn't have a name for this identity, so he simply calls it part. Would you please come part so I can talk to you? Would you communicate with me part? And nothing happens. And so he gets down on his hands and knees in front of this guy, and he says, part, I know you're in there. Come out, part. And you could see the light turning in Bianchi's. Oh, Suddenly, Bianchi's demeanor totally changed. And he became this real mean, gruff guy, and he held his cigarette differently, and he, he changed the tenor of his voice, and he became Steve. Well, you know how to get rid of you. You to think you're a pretty smart... What do you want to get rid of me for? Don't even give it a thought of getting rid of me. Every member of the prosecution team responded to the videotape the same way. And we thought that Bianchi was a very bad actor. Still, they wondered, would the judge agree? Well, I expect that the evidence will show that the manner in which Mr. Bianchi's hypnosis process was done was suggestible and makes his testimony unreliable. Gerald Chaliff led the defense of Angelo Bono. Chaliff argued that outside experts hypnotized Kenneth Bianchi in Bellingham, and during those sessions they warped or otherwise influenced Bianchi's memories about the murders of ten women. As a result, Chaliff said, Bianchi couldn't testify truthfully against his cousin. The law was uncertain at that point whether if somebody were hypnotized, he or she was 
disqualified or rendered incompetent to give testimony. This is Judge Ronald George. He presided over the trial of Angelo Bono. And what made it even more troubling for me, there was a case that was pending before the California Supreme Court called People versus Shirley. I need to take a moment and explain that case, People versus Shirley. In January 1979, a 32-year-old woman was hanging out after her shift as a bartender at Bud's Cove, a place popular with Marines stationed nearby at Camp Pendleton in San Diego County. The woman had a few drinks and went home. At 1.45 in the morning, she called the police and said somebody had raped her. She described the man who she said had broken into her apartment and assaulted her. Based on that information, police arrested a 22-year-old Marine and charged him with burglary and rape. Three months later, the night before the trial started, the local prosecutor hypnotized the woman to help her better recall details about the alleged assault. When she testified in court, some of her statements conflicted with what she told investigators before hypnosis. A jury found the defendant guilty of rape. His lawyers appealed, arguing that the prosecutors who hypnotized the victim suggested parts of her testimony. In the fall of 1981, that case was pending with the California Supreme Court. This presented Judge Ronald George with a problem. He had to anticipate what the state's highest court might decide in People versus Shirley. And I remember thinking at the time that it was like going through a minefield. Judge George figured the Supreme Court would bar testimony from witnesses who'd been hypnotized, but he wasn't sure whether the ban would apply only to cases in the future. Whatever ruling the court came down with, would it be retroactive to hypnosis that had occurred or been attempted before the court came down with its ruling. If he allowed even one hypnotized witness to testify and the jury later voted to convict Bono, that by itself could be the basis for an appeal. And if I didn't get it right, it was the type of error that would undoubtedly result in a reversal of this very, very lengthy proceeding Journalist Jim Mitchell, by this time reporting for the local CBS TV affiliate, described for viewers what was at stake. But was Bianchi really hypnotized during these sessions? The question has become critical because some courts have ruled testimony elicited through hypnosis is not admissible at a criminal trial. On the night of November 28, 1977, Beulah Stouffer saw two men abduct Lauren Wagner. Mrs. Stouffer later identified Kenneth Bianchi as one of the men she saw through her bedroom window that night. That matched what Bianchi told investigators, prosecutor Elizabeth Barron. If Beulah Stouffer testified of seeing Lauren Wagner pulled out of the car, and if, let's say, if Bianchi said, we pulled her out of her car, and now we have two witnesses that say, yeah, we saw her being pulled out of the car. Dr. Martin Reiser, the LAPD psychologist, interviewed Mrs. Stouffer shortly after Lauren's murder. The woman described seeing the men break Lauren's grip and remove her from her car. Then the witness started to cry, saying, I don't want to remember any more. Lead prosecutor Roger Boren. Everybody said, you know, she, she was really a bad subject for hypnosis, and she denied that she was hypnotized. 
The woman testified that the LAPD had tried three times to hypnotize her, but she said, I just couldn't go under like they wanted me to. She was kind of excitable and just the kind of person that doesn't get hypnotized easily. Dr. Reiser testified that Mrs. Stouffer may have been in a very light state of hypnosis at one point in the session, but it was hard to say. On the night of October 17, 1977, Ron Lemieux was working at his music store in Hollywood. The store fronted on Sunset, but it was on the corner of Sunset and Detroit. But what he told the police was that he was working light, uh, late one night, about 9 o'clock. He was trying to count the funds or something like that, doing a little auditing of the records in the store. And he looked out the window and he saw what looked like an ordinary vice arrest that you would have of prostitutes along there. There was a guy in plain clothes putting handcuffs on this girl and putting her in the back seat. Ron Lemieux came forward more than a year later, after Bianchi's arrest in Washington State, when his face was all over the news. And he said when he saw Bianchi's picture in the paper in late January, early February of 1979, he recognized the guy. Under hypnosis, Lemieux identified Bianchi and Yolanda Washington, but he wasn't sure the man driving the car was Angela Bono. He even said he thought he was hypnotized, eventually. Prosecutor Elizabeth Barron believed those two witnesses, Beulah Stouffer and Ron Lemieux, testified truthfully. They have no reason to prevaricate in any way. Whatever they said, whether they said they thought they were hypnotized or they didn't think they were hypnotized, whether they were or they weren't, they have no reason to lie about it. She couldn't say the same for Kenneth Bianchi. But, of course, Bianchi had every reason to lie. This guy is no more hypnotized than you and I are just sitting here. But yet it has to be proved in a legal way. Barron watched the videotapes of Kenneth Bianchi and Dr. John Watkins. She thought Bianchi was faking the multiple personality, the hypnosis, everything. And then just taking Dr. Watkins apart on the witness stand. And that was probably the most fun I ever had as a lawyer. Dr. Watkins testified that he had successfully hypnotized Kenneth Bianchi, thereby revealing another personality, Steve Walker, who'd committed the murders. Barron took aim at the doctor's credibility using an unusual source, the weekly magazine TV Guide. And I used to think that everybody was like this, that they would just naturally wake up and be someplace else or a whole lot older or wearing another dress. Sybil was a made-for-TV drama based on a true story. It starred Sally Field and Joanne Woodward and originally aired on NBC over two nights in the fall of 1976. Field won an Emmy for her portrayal of Sybil Dorset, who discovers, with the help of her psychiatrist, played by Woodward, 16 different personalities in her. Have I missed Thursday? Did I miss Thursday? It's all right. Where's your friend Vicky? I don't have a friend Vicky. She has a friend, Sybil. Another psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Allison, examined Bianchi and asked if he knew about the book or the movie. And Bianchi said he didn't. You ever read that book? Sybil? Yeah. You ever read Sybil? We were talking about it. It was on TV or something yeah. a while back. You never read it? Did you ever see the program? No. <laughs> that gave Prosecutor Barron an idea. Bellingham is real close to Canada, so I 
looked up uh, the teepee guide. They had teepee guides back in those days. So I looked in the library for a Canadian teepee guide, and there was the teepee guide, and there was the movie Sybil. She kept going. And I called the TV station, and the TV station told me that, yes, their broadcast got down to Bellingham, was seen on Bellingham TV stations. Sybil had been uh, broadcast from the Canadian broadcasting station into the prison so that he had the opportunity to see Sybil. He wasn't very good at covering his tracks, so to speak. Today, one of the nation's foremost experts in hypnosis, psychiatrist Martin Orne, walked into the courtroom of Judge Ronald George to testify about his sessions with Bianchi. To counter the testimony of Dr. John Watkins, the psychiatrist who believed he'd successfully hypnotized Kenneth Bianchi, the prosecution turned to Dr. Martin Orne. He was the last of six court-appointed psychiatrists to interview Bianchi in Bellingham, Washington. Prosecutor Mike Nash. He was a big guy, very proper, you know, very, very full of himself and so forth. And he loved to eat. Uh, we <laughs> spent a lot of time eating uh, when we were with him. Nash and Elizabeth Barron traveled to Philadelphia to prepare Dr. Orne for the hearing. We'd go to his house and uh, spend a whole day just going over every aspect of his testimony, going over the various tests that he did to prove that Kenneth Bianchi was faking him. As you open your eyes, there's a chair in front of you, a chair with armrests, where Mr. Brett will be sitting. Dr. Orne describes several tests that he conducted during his sessions with Kenneth Bianchi in Bellingham. In one test, the psychiatrist suggested to Bianchi that his defense attorney was sitting in the room. Bianchi leaned forward to shake hands. Hey, Dean, how you doing? So it's new. What are we going to do now? <clears throat> tell me. Come on, you can tell me. Also, during the session in Bellingham, Bianchi repeatedly turned to Dr. Orne and asked if he, too, saw the lawyer standing there. Oh, no. Beard? Mm -hmm. God, you can see him. Mm -hmm. You must be able to see him. His hair isn't combed as usual. Dr. Orne testified that this behavior, he later called it overacting, wasn't consistent with a hypnotic state. Someone who'd been hypnotized, he said, wouldn't try to persuade others they were seeing the same thing. Here's Dr. Orne from an interview he gave shortly after the trial concluded. Spontaneously getting up and shaking the hand is something which you never see with deeply hypnotized subjects. Even more striking, though, is what he does when I ask him to describe Dean Brett. He says, you see him, you must see him, he's there, you must see him. Now, that's an overplaying. Uh, Shakespeare would say, methinks he doth protest too much. The bottom line? Kenneth Bianchi, the doctor concluded, was never hypnotized. Bianchi was faking it the entire time. I mean, I had no, no doubts in my mind whatsoever that he didn't suffer from a multiple personality. Elizabeth Barron, the prosecutor. I think that he was just your basic criminal personality. 
having no empathy for anyone else. When Kenneth Bianchi took the stand, he gave conflicting answers about his own hypnosis. Jim Mitchell reported on the evening news. Today, Kenneth Bianchi says he doesn't know whether he was hypnotized or not, and then later went on to admit he may have been hypnotized on at least two of those occasions. It's grade B acting, uh, and some of it is actually comical. Judge Ronald George agreed with Dr. Martin Orne. Bianchi was never hypnotized. Bianchi, the judge ruled, could testify against his cousin. The judge also ruled that Beulah Stouffer, the woman who saw two men abduct Lauren Wagner from her car, was never hypnotized. That meant she could testify. But the judge also ruled that Ron Lemieux, who saw two men abduct Yolanda Washington off of a street in Hollywood, was in fact hypnotized. That meant Lemieux couldn't testify in court. Hillside is a production of Last 5% Media. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by me, Joseph Rodota. Our executive producers are Chris George and Joaquin Alvarado. Caitlin Bruce is our producer. Adam Melian is our research director. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Julie Checkaway and Robert Saladay served as consulting producers. Our sound engineers are Jeremy Dalmas and Craig Thomas. Craig is also our composer. Edgar Guerra designed our logo and website. Special thanks to the Center for Inquiry Libraries in Buffalo, New York, the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University, the Mainsfield Library at the University of Montana, and the Warnicky Ranch Artist Residency. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information about this episode, visit our website, hillsidepodcast.com. And thanks for listening. <laughs>